0: home so she could properly care for young Laura, their first and only child who was born on November 4th, 1946. From the beginning, Laura was a delightful addition to the family. She was an easy baby, recalled Jenna. She never cried and she was hardly even sick. The calm, contented personality that strikes everyone who meets Laura Bush was evident from babyhood, according to her mother, who added that her daughter was just born a happy little kiddo. Although Jenna and Harold Welch had wanted to raise a large family, unfortunately it was not meant to be. From early on, young Laura sensed that her parents wanted other children. She said, I was very aware that that was one of the disappointments, that they didn't have a lot of children. Jenna Welch had also been an only child, but her mother, Jessie, had come from a family of seven sisters. Jessie's mother, Eva, had been widowed at an early age, but was fortunate to have started a successful dairy farm that kept her and her girls busy with daily chores. The girls fed and milked the cows, cleaned out the barn, bottled milk, loaded products onto the delivery wagon, and drove the horse-drawn wagon to customers within a wide radius of the farm. In fact, one day while delivering milk with one of her daughters, Eva spotted a mailman coming toward them from the opposite direction. She casually mentioned him to her daughter, Jessie Laura, and as they passed each other, the young pair turned towards each other. Jessie would eventually marry her postman, Harold Hawkins, and they would have a daughter, Jenna, who would also one day marry a Harold. Jenna considered herself lucky to have found her Harold, a man whose laughter lit up a room. Laura observed her mother's devotion to her husband and her family, but Jenna was a multifaceted woman, And Laura once observed that her mother was a woman of that generation who really wanted to please her husband and cooked three meals a day. But she also was very interested in a lot of things outside of her marriage. When we got our Girl Scout bird badges, she was the Girl Scout leader and she developed a great interest in bird watching. A love for nature came easily to Jenna. As she grew up, she had developed a passion for the wildflowers of West Texas, my mother, Laura's grandmother, grew up on a farm in Arkansas, she recalls, and we often talked about flowers and birds. She was sort of a self-taught naturalist, and I'm the same way. Her love for birds continued after moving to Midland, where she joined the Midland Naturalist Group. We put out a wonderful monthly publication, The Phala which reports on nature in the area. They named the newsletter after The Fallow Rope a water bird that swims around in a circle to stir up the water and make the fish come up. The female also runs off on little errands of her own and leaves the male to care for the young. The women in the group liken themselves to the phalarope. They stir things up in the nature-loving community and leave their husbands at home at times to go birding. Laura's mother stirred things up as a naturalist, working to improve the environment, and years later... Her daughter would display some of her mother's phalarope qualities when as First Lady she would stir up the education system's kettle to improve schooling for America's children. As she moved through her childhood, Laura found security and strength in the delights of daily life in Midland, the small Texas town that would soon become a thriving center for oil interests. In time, this phenomenon would not only affect her family, but it would create the setting for a meeting with the man who would one day become her husband oil was to be the bridge that would connect laura's past with her future the presence of oil was in fact one reason why her father harold welch had chosen to settle in texas in nineteen forty six after completing a four-year stint with the army harold had just returned to the united states from germany where he had spent his last days with the Army's 555th Anti-Aircraft Battalion, trying to survive a difficult winter. He and his mates had fought in the bitter cold by day and slept in freezing, bombed-out houses at night. Memories of that bone-chilling cold and blinding snow would haunt Laura's father for the rest of his life. At last, with the surrender of Germany on January 2, 1946, Harold Welch gratefully went home to his wife, Jenna Louise Hawkins Welch, whom he had married during one of his leaves in 1944. Now back in the United States, Harold discovered that the war years had been good to nearby Midland, Texas. Since early 1942, it had been the site of the Army Air Force Bombardier Training School, the largest military training facility in the world. Between April 1942 and January 1945, More than 6,000 cadets had flown practice bombing runs over the West Texas desert. About half of those cadets had young wives and children, and neither the base nor the town of Midland had enough homes for them. Adding to the housing crunch was a new influx of oil companies that chose to set up shop in Midland because of its accessibility and central location in the oil basin. Midland's housing shortage was actually a boon for Harold Welch, whose father had been a builder in Lubbock, Texas. From his father, Harold had inherited the desire to create something from the ground up. He decided to use his spare time to learn more about the building business while carrying a full-time job as a district manager of five branches of the Universal CIT Credit Corps, an institution, explains his widow Jenna, that financed automobile dealers. Eventually, he resigned from his job as a credit officer and went into building and developing full-time. He formed a business with another Midland builder, Lloyd Wainick, and their company enjoyed a significant portion of Midland's residential expansion over the next 20 years, including the development of five major subdivisions encircling the growing city. Harold's background in designing homes came from two sources, watching his father and using his imagination. Harold just liked building, recalls Jenna. He would take a piece of paper and draw up a floor plan and then take it to a draftsman who would make a blueprint. His big four-bedroom plan was really wonderful, and he built a lot of those homes. Then, between 1945 and 1950, a series of big oil strikes just south of Midland known as the Sprayberry Discovery brought more than 11,000 people into Midland. George Herbert Walker Bush was also attracted to the promise of oil in the Southwest and left Connecticut to find just the right location. He settled on Midland in 1950, where he became a salesman for an oil drilling equipment company. Bush brought with him his wife Barbara, their two-year-old son George W., and their infant daughter Robin. The Bushes had settled into the same part of town as the Welches, who with their three-year-old daughter, Laura, lived about 15 blocks south of the Bushes. The two families were not yet destined to meet, however. They attended different churches. The Bushes went to First Presbyterian and the Welches to First Methodist and did not yet know each other. In 1950, the Welches entered Laura in a private kindergarten called Ailyn Gray's Jack and Jill. At the end of her first week, Laura impressed her mother, as well as herself, with her excellent memory. She prided herself in the first week of school by learning the names of all the children in her class, recalled Jenna Welch. Remembering names was a skill Laura would use throughout her career as a teacher and librarian. When she was a school librarian, continued her mother, she had 700 kids in the school and she tried to learn the names of as many as she could. As to the kindergarten children that came in every day that she read to, she learned their names right off. When she was five years old, Laura took a ballet class at a popular Midland studio run by Georgia Harston. She also began swimming lessons at that age, joining a beginner's class at Hogan Park in the northeast section of town. To top off an already active schedule, young Laura joined the cherub choir. After first grade, Laura spent the rest of her school years in the Midland public school system. Like many American small towns in the 1950s, Midland was a place safe enough for young children to walk the streets by themselves. Todd Houck, a historian and director of archives at Midland's Petroleum Museum, remembers Midland as the typical Norman Rockwell kind of world. Everyone felt very safe. No one would dare bring a lighter into school, much less a gun. Laura was a typical Texas schoolgirl. Once a week, she would put on her Brownie Scout's uniform and wear it to James Bowie Elementary School. After the last bell, she would walk with a few of her friends to Mrs. Smith's house for their troop meeting. There, her Brownie Scout leaders, Mrs. Barrett and Mrs. Smith, taught the girls simple household skills interlaced with basic lessons in citizenship, as outlined in the Brownie Scouts handbook. Another childhood friend, Sally Brady Rock, reminisced about her troop meetings with Laura. I remember Brownie Scout meetings over at Gwen Smith's house, she said, and our little arts and crafts projects that we would do. Laura was always so good. She always made things well. Laura not only was well-behaved, but she learned from her mentors. From the tender age of seven, she knew what she wanted to be when she grew up. Inspired by her second-grade teacher, Mrs. Charlene Nagy, she told her parents that she, too, wanted to be a teacher. Decades later, she would invite her beloved second-grade instructor to her husband's inauguration and place her in the front row at the White House ceremony. At the age of eight, Laura graduated to Girl Scouts and attended her first summer camp. It was almost 200 miles away from home in the Davis Mountains southwest of Midland, a beautiful valley nestled between two plateaus with an unparalleled view of Mitre Peak. Coyotes, turkey buzzards, deer, wild turkeys, jackrabbits, and other animals live in the wilderness surrounding the camp. But Laura wasn't ready to leave home for so long. She went for just a week, said Laura's mother. Then she asked to come home. I think she was homesick. She wouldn't go back for a year or two. Laura had forged a strong bond with her parents and friends and found being apart from them very difficult. But when she was older, she returned to the camp, and this time she truly enjoyed herself. She also spent summers camping at Bandera, 370 miles southeast of Midland, a ranching center in the Texas Hill Country known as the Cowboy Capital of the World. We had a great time in Girl Scouts, said Laura's mother, who was one of her Girl Scout leaders. We organized things to do around the community and took the girls on field trips. The summer between her junior and senior year in college, said her mother, Laura was a camp counselor at Camp Mystic in the Texas Hill Country, northwest of San Antonio. She had a good time and earned a little money, too. Camping with the Girl Scouts had given Laura an introduction to nature and outdoor adventure that became an essential part of her life. Later, as First Lady of Texas, one of her favorite getaways was taking whitewater rafting trips with friends. The summer temperatures in Midland can reach into the 100s, and Laura spent many days at the swimming pool with her friends. Afterwards, Laura would bring a friend or two home to visit or to spend the night. Laura's house was a center of liveliness and good humor. Her friends felt right at home, thanks to her father's quick wit and her mother's warm welcome. You always love to hang out at their house, said one of Laura's best friends, Jan Donnelly O'Neill. You just always laughed and had a good time, sitting down and having Cokes with Laura and her mom and dad. Laura fondly recalls her father's sense of humor. My daddy loved to laugh, she said. He loved animals. He was just one of those men who never met a dog he didn't like or that didn't like him. He was funny, and he didn't take himself too seriously. Laura's friends knew that she had two great loves, reading and pets. One of her childhood friends, Judy Jones Ryan, gave Laura her first kitten when they were little girls. I remember he had a real pug nose, kind of flat, and she would always push on his nose. It was a tabby, and she loved it. Laura's dog, a mixed breed named Marty, became Laura's constant companion. Another friend recalled finding Laura in the backyard one summer day, ridding Marty of his wood ticks without being the least bit grossed out. She was picking off ticks and putting them in a solution very methodically, said Peggy Porter Weiss. I was thinking, oh my gosh, I would never do this, and if someone forced me to do this, I would complain the whole time. Laura looked up and told her squeamish friend, "It's not so bad. After spending her first school years at North Elementary and Bowie Elementary, Laura entered San Jacinto Junior High. Friends recalled that Laura went out of her way to make sure the kids who transferred from one of the smaller parochial elementary schools were accepted by the students who had spent all their elementary years together. I was rather intimidated by all of the others in school, said Cindy schumann Clatt, who had spent her first eight years of school at neighboring St. Anne's. My first memory of Laura is how friendly and concerned she was that those of us from St. Anne's were included in activities around school. Another new friend in junior high, Karen Thompson Trout, described Laura as a very, very sweet girl. She was always a friend to everybody. When Laura started high school in 1961, she was in the first 10th grade class to attend the area's new Robert E. Lee High School. Always the literary type, she worked on the yearbook and